Well, good morning. It's great that uh, you can join us for church this morning, whether it be in the building or online. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to bring you God's Word this morning. Uh, if you're in the building, there are sermon manuscripts and outlines at the back, if that's something that uh, you want to grab and follow along. Otherwise, please have your Bibles open in front of you as we look at Mark 12. On the 1st of February, 2022, a journalist asked Prime Minister Scott Morrison this simple question. Off the top of your head, can you tell me the price of a loaf of bread, a litre of petrol, and a rapid antigen test? Morrison was caught off guard by this question, and he wasn't able to give a straight answer. Now, this question is classic gotcha journalism. A gotcha question is designed to trap someone in their own words so you can say, aha, gotcha. Finding the right question is important. And if you pull it off, well, your opponent will discredit themselves. And this is what we see in today's passage as the religious leaders of Israel go on the counter-attack counter against Jesus and try to trap him with gotcha questions. Last week, we read that Jesus had told a parable condemning the religious leaders of Israel, which included the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law, who we're going to meet today. Last week's passage finished with the leaders going away and scheming of a way to arrest him. Today, we read of three confrontations with Jesus as the religious establishment tried to discredit his authority, and they come up with their own gotcha questions. And they're very, very clever gotcha questions designed to stumble any opponent. So how will Jesus go? Well, let's take a closer look. Verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, this is a very unlikely alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians. On the one hand, the Pharisees were the religious heroes of the Jews because of their intense nationality and their opposition to foreign rule. On the other hand, the Herodians, they supported King Herod, who had made a deal with the Romans so that he could rule over the Jews. They were opponents on different ends of the political spectrum. And yet, as the saying goes, my enemy's enemy is my friend. They have a common enemy in Jesus. Verse 14. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. But they don't actually believe that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be challenging Jesus. Through a bit of flattery, they're setting him up on a pedestal in front of the crowds so that they can publicly humiliate him. Is it right to pay taxes? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Paying this imperial tax to Caesar was detested by the Jews because it was a symbol of foreign domination. They're asking if it's lawful, if it's permitted under God's divine laws to pay taxes to their overlords and rulers who are pagan. It's a very clever gotcha question because it suggests the possibility that there's a conflict between human laws of Caesar, and the divine laws of God. And Jesus, well, he had to choose a side. They wanted a black or white answer. Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? Yes or no? If Jesus was to say, yes, we should, well, then he would offend the Pharisees and be discredited in the eyes 
of the crowds because he's supporting foreign rule and not God's rule. If Jesus were to say, no, we shouldn't, well then he'll defend the Herodians and could be accused of being a political agitator against the Romans. No matter which answer he gave, he had been trapped. Gotcha. So how would Jesus respond? Well, challenge accepted. Jesus knows what they're up to, and he calls out the hypocrisy. Verse 15, why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Without delay, they brought the coin as if they already had it with them. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, fair enough. Paying taxes using the local currency, uh, that's pretty normal. That makes sense. We pay our Australian taxes with Australian dollars. No big deal. But in this case, it was a big deal. On one side of the denarius coin, there was a picture of Caesar with the inscription, Son of the Divine. And on the other side, Caesar is pictured seated on a throne as high priest. For a Jew, it was unimaginable, super offensive for a human to declare himself to be divine. And so this coin is blasphemous. And yet, by carrying this coin, Jesus' opponents are revealing that they're already participating in Roman social order. They aren't opposed to Rome as much as they made themselves out to be if they're already paying this tax. That is hypocrisy. Well, got your back. But Jesus goes further. Verse 17. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In verse 14, the original word for pay means to give and engage in a financial transaction. The question was about giving and paying tax to Caesar. But in verse 17, Jesus speaks of giving back to meet a contractual obligation. They must return that which already belongs to the receiver. So if the coin is made in Caesar's image, then it belongs to him, and it should be given back to him. And if humanity is made in God's image, well then humans belong to God, and they should give themselves to God. Jesus had called out their hypocrisy. They weren't actually as opposed to the taxes as they made themselves out to be. But more importantly, they had not been giving back to God what belongs to him. And we've seen this all the way through Mark. They didn't practice what they preached. And at the end of verse 17, they're amazed at him. They're left speechless. There's a sense of grudging admiration for the quality of the answer that he gave and for the authority that he carried. Jesus had transformed it into his own gotcha moment. Well, as we reflect on Jesus' words to the Pharisees, we also need to ask ourselves, do we give back to God what already belongs to him? Or do we compromise and blend into the social order of our society? Do we withhold parts of our lives from God because we think that it belongs exclusively to us? Our ambitions, our finances, our dreams for our children. We are made in God's image, and so we need to give back to God what is God's, our whole lives, 
not just bits of it. We need to beware of our own hypocrisy when we think that we've given enough back to God. Well, after catching out the Pharisees, it was now the Sadducees who wanted to turn. Verse 18, Then the Sadducees, who say, that, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Though many Jews believed in a resurrection in the future, others did not, including the Sadducees. They believed that at death, both the body and the soul perished, and there was no final day in which the dead would be raised to life. And so we're anticipating a gotcha question relating to the resurrection. Teacher, they said, and again, saying teacher, using a form of flattery, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must bury the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, here the Sadducees are referring to Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 to 6, when they say that Moses wrote a commandment about it. It's on the screen. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name would not be blotted out from Israel. The Sadducees then present this hypothetical scenario. Verse 20. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow. But he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. And last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since seven were married to her? If Jesus argues that she is the wife only of the first husband, then there will need to be some theological acrobats needed to justify that. If Jesus argues that she is the wife of all the husbands, Well, then again, he would need to do a few theological acrobats. Either way, Jesus was being forced to concede that there is no resurrection. It's a ridiculous idea. Otherwise, Moses had made a serious error when he wrote this commandment. And such an accusation would turn everyone against him. Gotcha, Jesus. Well, little do they realize that Jesus had said in John 11.25, that I am the resurrection and the life. So, challenge accepted. Verse 24, Jesus responds with his own question. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Jesus highlights how they've deceived themselves and have failed to comprehend the true power of God. The Sadducees' hypothetical scenario is based on an incorrect assumption. They assume that the world to come is essentially an extension of earthly conditions, and that included marriages. But that's not the case, as Jesus will explain. Verse 25, When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. The resurrection needs to be understood using different categories. The earthly imagery of marriage, well, that doesn't quite capture what's going to happen. A new category, like the angels in heaven, is necessary to begin to understand how the resurrection will work and what it will look like. There's a great mystery to the nature of angels in heaven, and likewise, there's a great mystery about the resurrection. But all of this will be revealed when Jesus comes back to life. 
And later on, the Apostle Paul expands on what the resurrection will be for us in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus continues his response with another question in verse 26. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of, Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Jesus fights fire with fire. If you try and quote Moses, well, I'm going to do it too. And I'm going to quote from Exodus 3 where God identifies himself to Moses in the burning bush. Now, if the Sadducees actually knew the scriptures and the power of God, then they would have carefully read Exodus 3 and understood that God speaks of himself as the God of the living, not of the dead. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been long dead by Moses' time, God refers to his relationship with Moses' forefathers as present tense. I am the God of, not I was the God of. God's relationship with his people is not ended by death, but continues into the present and into the future, into eternity. As one commentator helpfully put it, Once a relationship with God is established, it bears the promise of God and cannot be ended even by death. If there was nothing after death, as the Sadducees assumed, then that makes God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob finite and unfulfilled. And that would be to misunderstand the power of God. Jesus ends with the same word in verse 27 as he does in verse 24. You are badly mistaken. You're in error. You've deceived yourselves. With great authority, he reveals their misunderstanding of God's word. Well, are we in danger of being in error as well? Do we bring in our own wrong assumptions when we presume to speak on God's behalf about particular topics? Do we have strong opinions about social justice, sexual identity, environmentalism, whatever it is, but actually have a weak foundation for approaching it biblically? Are we in danger of not grasping the true power of God and thinking too small of him? Do we look at the world, the pandemic, the war, the floods, and think that God has lost control or that he doesn't care? We need to be aware of our assumptions when we approach difficult topics and to make sure that we know the scriptures and the power of God before we speak. Well, sitting on the sidelines to this debate was a teacher of the law. Uh, These scribes had a reputation for being experts in the interpretation of the Old Testament law. In verse 28, the the teacher of the law is impressed with Jesus' answer, so he wants to have a go as well. He wants to ask a question. But unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's not looking for a gotcha moment but honestly wants to hear what Jesus has to say. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? He's asking Jesus, of all 613 commandments that we can see in the Torah, which one is the most important one? Now, it might be a bit of a tricky question if you don't know all 613 commandments. I certainly don't. But Jesus, well, challenge accepted. Verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 4, uh, 6, uh, verses 4 to 5, which is a part of our Old Testament reading this morning. Uh, this, uh, these verses are a bit like the Apostles' Creed. It expresses the essence of who God is and how his people are to respond, but it's for the Jews. This is what they recited. But Jesus, well, he adds in an extra little bit to that. With all your mind. Jesus wants to show that all parts of a person, including their intellect and understanding, we must love God. There cannot be a part of you that doesn't love God. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 31 and adds a second most important commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. From Jesus' earlier teachings, neighbor means those who are in their sphere of interaction, even if they're not Jewish. Jesus ends his answer with, there is no commandment greater than these. Notice that Jesus says that there is no commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. Jesus either has to go back to school because he has terrible grammar, or he's answering the question in a very clever way. Here, Jesus is bringing together the two most important commandments and making them into one commandment that is greater than any other. The common thread is love. And following this law of love for God and for others is the basic foundational principle by which all other 600 plus commandments can be derived and understood. The two are inseparable and make one commandment with two parts, founded ultimately on who God is. The teacher of the law is impressed. Well said, teacher. He paraphrases what he has understood about Jesus' response and adds in his own clarification. To love God and love your neighbours as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The teacher of the law was headed in the right direction, unlike the hypocritical Pharisees and the mistaken Sadducees. What's needed to get him all the way into the kingdom of God will be Jesus' ultimate fulfillment of this greatest commandment. He will offer his own body as a sacrifice for the sins of the people to show what it means to love God with all that you have and to love others as yourself. Well, what about us? How are we going with this commandment to love God with everything that we have and to love others as ourselves? God is more interested is not is more interested in us fulfilling this command than giving offerings or sacrifices. He wants more than just our money or our time on Sunday morning or our good Christian efforts. He wants us to love him with all that we have. And perhaps this morning as you're filling in the survey, it might be helpful for you to reflect on how you're going with loving God in the way that he uh, he commands you to. In your daily life, we need to be we need to be aware of our tendencies to think that we can substitute our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength with lesser things, or to think that there are other more important things that God wants us to do or to give. At the end of these three interactions, no one 
dared ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus has just bamboozled his opponents. They couldn't find a gotcha moment. Instead, Jesus had turned it around and made it into his own gotcha moment. And he's going to continue to do that in next week's passage as he goes on the offensive with his own questions. As we reflect on our passage today, we probably have people in our lives who are a bit like Jesus' opponents. Do you have unbelieving family members, friends, neighbours, colleagues, social groups, where they ask you questions about what you believe? They might try to challenge you by asking difficult questions about the reliability of the Bible or proposing cunning theological conundrums or present ethical dilemmas and what-ifs. How do you feel about accepting this challenge, about saying challenge accepted? For some of us, we say, bring it on, challenge accepted. We enjoy a robust discussion. If this is you, good on you. Keep going. As you defend the faith and help the other person understand their wrong assumptions, do so with gentleness and respect so that when they see your life and your conduct, they will glorify God on the day that Christ returns. But some of us might shy away from the challenge because we know that they're just looking for a gotcha moment. You might be afraid that you'll give an unsatisfactory answer. Even with a theological degree, I struggle to answer questions. Jesus was the teacher who taught the way of God truthfully and with authority. We read that he gave brilliant answers that left his opponents in just utter grudging amazement. But none of us are like that. Even those of us who who love a good challenge will find ourselves trapped every now and again by seemingly clever questions designed to trip us up. And so what hope do we have? Well, unlike the teacher of the law who is not far from the kingdom of God, we who place our trust in Jesus Christ are members of God's kingdom. We belong in that kingdom And the risen Lord Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit onto his people. In Luke 12, 11 to 12, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Though we may not face the same persecution as Jesus' disciples will when he spoke this encouragement to them, well, we'll still need to defend ourselves and our faith when we are challenged. But the good news is that the Holy Spirit helps us to speak God's truth. God works through our weaknesses, through our poor explanations, our, our jumbled words, our incoherent arguments for his glory. For some, your answers may begin someone else's journey towards finding the truth, towards their journey into the kingdom of God. But for others, your answers might invite more challenges, more questions. But in all of this, we express what it is that we believe and understand to the best that we can. And it brings glory to God. And when that other person doesn't understand or refuses to listen, well, it's not because you've done a bad job of answering their question. Rather, 
their eyes have been veiled and they're living in darkness. They need the Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of their heart. Their rejection of your answer is not a reflection of the quality of your answer, but of their stance towards God. And that's why prayer is so important. However, we still want to be able to give faithful and clear answers so that we can love our neighbors with our words and with our thoughtfulness and to continue that conversation so we can share Christ. And we do this by growing and developing in our knowledge of who God is through his word. Have a daily Bible reading plan, join a growth group, read good books, ask each other challenging questions and having a go at answering, do a PTC subject and pray for yourself and for those who ask you these questions. As challenging questions are proposed to you, not only will you be able to defend your faith, but you'll be able to go on the offensive like Jesus and to help people to see the errors in their understanding. And this will help them come closer and closer and closer into the kingdom of God. And even if you don't currently face any oppositions or questions, Well, there will come a time when tough questions will be thrown your way. How will you use this this time to strengthen your faith and knowledge so that you can be prepared when those questions come? As those who follow the risen king, we may not have all the answers when tricky questions are asked, but we have assurance that even with the little that we do know and with whatever we are able to share with others, God uses it powerfully to bring people closer into his kingdom through the strength of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've brought us into your kingdom and you've given us your Holy Spirit to enable us to give our whole lives to you. Please give us words to speak when our faith is challenged and please help us see this as an opportunity to share the good news of our risen King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.